Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, this podcast episode is brought to you by our sponsor, St. Gaster. So are you looking at getting your product into the hands of the right people, the people that are going to absolutely love it? Did you know that podcast advertising is literally 4.4 times more effective than the traditional display type of advertising? So if you're looking at really using podcast advertising, you may want to connect with Sencaster. So they've created this thing. It's called the Sencaster Podcast Marketplace, where you can connect as a brand or a company with the right type of creators. And again, you know, via Sencaster, you can connect with people like myself, where essentially we are putting ads of the brands and the companies that we absolutely love. So again, if you are interested in doing this, just go to send.ai forward slash dealmakers1, and that is a number one. And again, the team at Sencaster will be able to guide you in the right direction. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a very interesting founder. I think that you're all going to find his journey very inspiring on how he came to the U.S., how he really, you know, had to start from nothing. And, uh, and, and, and again, you know, the company that he's been able to build because right now he's riding this rocket ship. But I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Arjun Narajan. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So let's do a little of a walk through memory lane, Arjun. Tell us about life growing up in Bangalore, India. So I grew up in India. Um, I think uh, Bangalore has a very different vibe today than when I was growing up. When I grew up, it was a sleepy, sleepy little town with uh, not very much going on. It was actually very nice. In fact, I I barely recognize it when I go back uh, to visit because now it's this uh, thriving, massive city. Uh, So so the Bangalore Bangalore I grew up in is not the Bangalore of today. It's It's a very boring town where I spent a lot of time with my family. And uh, study that 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 that's a very very it was a very sleepy town experience. Now, how how do you come up with the idea of or perhaps landing in the U.S.? Because I mean, when you came to the U.S., you were very young. You were uh, seventeen. I mean, it sounds a little bit early, no, to come to come here. Yeah, I think most most folks. There's a lot of Indians who do immigrate to the U.S., but they generally do so for a job or after college or or, or something of that sort. I don't know what when the idea came to me to to, to come to call uh, to come to America for college. Um, uh, I went to sort of intentionally to this uh, boarding school. I got a scholarship to this really really nice international boarding school near Bombay, which was away from my family. And I hadn't really considered moving away from home uh, during high school, but then I had this very compelling scholarship. And and that was the moment because that was sort of an international school with like an international syllabus where I had this sort of decision where it's like, if you go down this path, like you can't really apply for Indian universities because the sort of systems were different. It was really, you know, this just chance application that a friend told me to apply to this amazing school. I did. I knew nothing about it. Um, then I got the scholarship in my, in my lap. Um, it was sort of financially very good for my family f- for me to take it. Um, and that sort of set me down this path of, uh, you know, if... I do this, and then sort of you're more set up to 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 apply internationally than than sort of domestically, um, and then and then I got there and I applied to colleges. I, I hadn't been to the U.S., so I applied off of you know basically the only information I had, which was U.S. News and World Report rankings, right? So so we just applied to a bunch of colleges and and universities, um, and I ended up at uh, Williams College, which 
at the time I knew nothing about. Uh, it's a small liberal arts college in, in, in rural Massachusetts, which I also did not know I was getting myself into. Um, and it was an amazing experience. But that's sort of how I stumbled into into uh, coming to the U.S. for college earlier. And, 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 and you know, we can get a little bit more into that, but uh, that's the answer. And obviously, in this case, it was a pretty big effort for the family, you know, to uh, to pay for the flight. And, you know, they even had to sell some retirement uh, bonds and and things like that. So, I mean, that's also a lot of pressure on you. So I guess I guess the question here that comes to mind is when you're coming to a completely different part of the world. I mean, maybe even one of the first times that that you're getting out of, of, of what you knew of the comfort zone. And you're coming here, a completely different culture, different everything. And at 17, where you're so young, I mean, how do you think that affected you? And, and how do you think that built who you are today? And, and more importantly, to, to be able to give you that a strategic lens or perspective on how you're tackling uncertainty. Yeah, so I, I, think, I think it was the best thing that could have happened to me was to land in the small, wealthy New England college town because I, I think the one mistake that I see many sort of immigrants making is they'll come to America and then they'll shack up in like a dorm with like a bunch of other immigrants and they'll just like hang out with each other um, and, and, and try and recreate as much of their home country as possible. And you see this with immigrants from all sorts of countries. And I think, I think that's a mistake because sort of I was thrown into this, 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 you know, small, wealthy liberal arts college. And I was forced to sort of, uh, spend time with, with, uh, with, uh, you know, Americans. And it was great because that, that I think gave me a, uh, a much faster ramp towards integrating and sort of understanding the culture I was in. It was obviously much harder because, you know, people do that. The, the, they, they spend time with uh, their immigrant communities uh, naturally because it is more comfortable. So I think it, it, by, by being less comfortable at the start, it has made it much more comfortable later on. It, it, it prepared me to, to sort of navigate uh, uh, a lot of sort of, I think, scenarios that would be weird. And, you know, so, so like fundraising, you know, running a company, managing a large budget, these things are sort of inherently weird, right? You can't really train for them. But the one thing you can train is if you've been doing weird stuff for more than a decade, then, uh, you know, the, this isn't anything new sort of in that context. So, yeah, definitely coming to, coming. I, I, want, I want to sort of throw, throw, throw a pitch out there. The Williams College was amazing, right? The financial aid that they, they, they really took the care for someone coming in sort of without any money from like a foreign country to sort of be... Um, as well integrated as possible, uh, you know, in October giving you two hundred dollars and telling you to buy a winter coat and taking you to the mall and teaching you what a winter coat is is very important in like, yeah, no kidding, New England. Well, I'd never seen snow before, and uh, I think I think it's made sort of adjusting to to running a company a lot lot easier because fundamentally, like the distance gap between growing up in India to like wealthy New England college town, that distance is greater than the distance between sort of working at a company to running one. A hundred percent. Now, in your case, I mean, you did a little bit of the, um, the academic side of it. No? I mean, you did the college, then you did the whole uh, master slash PhD type of approach. Uh, and then from there, you joined as an engineer, Cockroach Labs. But you know, I guess you, you, you were destined for building something, doing something big. And I think that that encounter with coming to the U.S. and, and having that uh, culture shock and everything, I think that that, that gave you kind of like the understanding that it was okay to, to, to be in front of uncertainty and doing, and doing big things. So 
Why do you think it took you so long to get at it as an entrepreneur? I would encourage people, you know, even if you are very entrepreneurially minded, as, as I was, I mean, I always intended to start something from, from sort of early in college. I, I, I sort of read as much about sort of tech startups and entrepreneurship and, you know, the Paul Graham blogs back in the day. Like that was, that was what everybody gravitated to. And the one thing I sort of arrived at early on was I wanted to do was what, what I, what I, what I, I guess I, I would call a deep tech startup, right? A startup that was based off of some deep pool of of IP or research, um, and not really sort of a business model sort of be a company that was innovative more in just sort of a novel business model. Like I wanted to do something very deep, and I very much went into a PhD in computer science. I sort of did that because I'd really loved computer science. College was my first real exposure to sort of academic computer science, and I loved it. And I was like, hey, this is something really deep here. I went straight to a PhD at Penn, really for the purpose of searching the 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 sort of frontier of knowledge for something that's very commercializable. I mean, um, uh, some of the some of the areas that I considered were like hardware. So so the, the companies that I really admired, like Intel, you know, were those that I viewed as doing a massive amount of R and D and sort of making making. Uh, Sort of deep contributions through commercialization that was a, allowed them to fund billions of dollars of R and D, um, and that's sort of how I got into databases. Because in the world of software, I think sort of the two largest projects or, or, or sort of areas in which you know it takes a lot of, of of capital intensive effort, many years, longer time horizons, many more people are sort of databases and operating systems, and there really hasn't been a commercially viable operating system since you know. Windows or or that's mostly become non-commercial sort of shared open source sort of innovation uh, since then or tied to sort of some 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 other hardware business model. Uh, but databases were what you know I sort of stumbled into it. I was first doing research in in, in an area called distributed systems, which again large scale, you know, like cloud computing platforms that that were very capital intensive and 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 sort of adjacent to databases. And that's how I got interested in databases. Was uh, I viewed that as a place that was much more likely to result in a deep tech startup than, than something else. I think I think I think you know it's not the only one for sure. There's also machine learning, AI, like like that was also sort of compelling. Uh, but I sort of accidentally fell into databases and loved what I saw. So then in that case, you know, what was that point where, you know, when you were at Cockroach Labs, you know, obviously here you are completely in love with databases and distributed systems, where you started to visualize you doing something of your own, you know, like you really building something from nothing and, and, and building it to life. I mean, what was that incubation of the idea and that thought process all the way until that moment that you said, I'm going to be all right. I'm going to go for this. It's actually from before I went to Cockroach. I actually went to Cockroach because my co-founder was not my now co-founder, Frank, um, uh, who's chief scientist at Materialize and the creator of the technology that we are commercializing, Frank was unwilling to 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 start a company to commercialize his ideas. Um, I approached him first to sort of raise the possibility when I was still a PhD student, um, sort of I met him sort of through the research community. He was at Microsoft Research at the time, and then he was later on at ETH Zurich, the Swiss University. And I was like, hey, you should commercialize these technologies. And he was not interested. And that's actually why I went to Cockroach. I, I couldn't convince him to start something and at, at that time. Um, how I pitched it was, you should start something. I'll be the first one to join. 
because because I always viewed the technology and the technological base as sort of the 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 origin, and and he was the creator of technology, not me. And it was only because he didn't do it that I went to Cockroach because that was another. You know, at that time, it was I think a little less than twenty people. It was it was a, it was a Series A company that had, uh, you know, that was based off of a different area of computer science database research that I also viewed as very compelling. Um, and so I went there, and that was an accidental stroke of amazing luck for for two reasons. One, the people were amazing, um, and they really, particularly the CEO uh, Spencer, who sort of mentored me and sort of gave me sort of the front row seat and, and explained everything uh, that he was doing to build commercial viability for that business. The second piece was I grew closer to Frank over time and was able to make a much more coherent pitch to Frank. And by this by this time, the pitch had evolved to not just you should start a company, it's sort of abstract, question mark, question mark, question mark. It's like you should start a company. Here's the playbook, right? Here's what Here's the activities that Cockroach is doing. Here are the kinds of activities that you should also be doing. And soon that sort of turned into a, a more solid proposal, at which point Frank's sort of response was, this sounds great, but it also sounds like a lot of work that that you know better than I do. So why don't we do this together rather than me do it and you join? Um, and that was really um, the, the, the genesis of Materialize. Um, what happened at that point was I immediately took this to Spencer. I said, hey, Spencer, um, who is the CEO of Cockroach? I was like, Frank has approached me with this possibility that we start this thing together. What do you think? And I'll never forget the first words out of his mouth was, that's amazing. I would love to invest, right? So I think very much the origin story of Materialize is, you know, the luck of working with good people who were supportive and nurturing in in in, in not just showing uh me what to do, but also then supporting me through that process. So Spencer was the very first check-in to materialize. Peter Mattis, the CTO of Cockroach, was the second check-in to materialize. Um, much of the early fundraising was based off, we, we pitched basically based off of the introductions that Spencer made to the VCs that he had met over over, over the years. Um, we share some VCs um, um, in common, uh, Redpoint, uh, who did our, our Series C, it, uh, did Cockroach a Series B, for instance. I would say that that that... I'm not sure I would have been able to do it. It was not something internal. It was the environment that I was in. I had the great fortune to be in one that was very nurturing. Hey, guys, so pardon the interruption here. I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard and already doing your business alone it's super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a Series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid-cap type of cycle. So, 
Again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. And what ended up being the business model of Materialize for the people that are listening to get it? How do you guys make money? Yeah, so this is excellent. Um, so Materialize is a database that allows you to do complex analytical queries in real time. And by real time, sub-second or you know, tens of millisecond. This is very valuable for companies that are taking a lot of the, the massive data sets that they're sort of collecting and the analytics insights they're getting and putting them into production. So if, so, so if you think of the difference between, well, you have all this data and you have these insights and, and then some analyst is looking at some chart and making some decision, you know, that's sort of a manual process that's okay for that data to be computed, say, in Snowflake once a day. But if you are doing more automated things, a good example of this would be dynamic notifications to your users or dynamic coupons or dynamic pricing or any of these things. Um, that requires a similar level of analytics querying capabilities, but in real time while that user is on your website. Uh, and and Materialize is a database that lets you do, do, do that with the same SQL. Uh, it's, it, it looks and feels like a SQL database, but with the first time real time. And it is a database in the cloud, uh, very similar to sort of other cloud databases uh, like Cockroach or Snowflake um, or, or others where, where, where users, you know, Connected up to their data pipelines, and they uh, pay based off of sort of the the amount of of usage that they they do, the amount of uh, hardware or that that they de deploy for running the computer, which of course depends on the complexity of a computer, how much compute they're doing, how much data they have, etc. Got it. Now, in terms of um, you are alluding to it on how things got uh, kickstarted with with the first checks of uh, of the folks at Cockroach Labs, but how much capital have you guys raised to date? We've raised three rounds of funding, a um, $100 million total across the three rounds, most recently a $60 million Series C. And what has been the experience? Because, I mean, here you are, uh, an immigrant, right, that came at 17, knowing nothing. And uh, all of a sudden, here you are running this company with all these millions of dollars invested. You know, it's, it's unbelievable. But but how was that process of going through that fundraising journey? I mean, I'm an immigrant too, and, you know, I know that that was not easy because it's a different way of, of really thinking about positioning things, asking for help, you know, like selling, you know, your stuff. I mean, in my culture, you know, back in Spain, it was just a little bit different from how it's done here. So how was that experience, that journey for you of going through all these different financing cycles? I think, I think one of the funny things is like, it's, I think maybe easier for me than for like a normal American, because it is less intimidating to be negotiating a $60 million term sheet with somebody, you know, who's running a billion dollar fund than it was going to like my my first college friend's middle-class home in like, in like Westchester County, right? It's like that, that was way more wealth and, and <laughs> distance from where I was back right. then to like, you know, billionaires running billion dollar funds today. Like this is actually, once you've done the first, like the second one's not that much uh, different. I would say that, uh, that that's the immigrant advantage is it, almost I would say it's like everything is so weird for so long that uh, <laughs> finally when you're in a situation that is like just slightly more weird you're, you're kind of normalized <laughs> to uh, to sort of this this great distance between you and and the rest of society. Got it, got it. Now in terms of the um, the business, you know, for the people that are listening to really 
perhaps get an idea on the scope of the size of Materialize today. I mean, anything that you can share in terms of number of employees or anything else that you feel comfortable sharing? Yeah, we're, we're a little over 50 people. We're mostly based in New York, but we are, you know, we have our, 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 our team is, is global. We have several folks in, in across Europe. Um, the database, uh, many of the folks that we, we, we worked with um, at Materialize, many of our colleagues are folks that we have worked with in the past. And there's a few of us uh, from Cockroach, there's a few of us uh, that we knew sort of through sort of the database community um, and, and, and folks that Frank had worked with um, at ETH Zurich uh, when he was there. Uh, that, that uh, you know, so it's about 50 people, um, I would say mostly um, more than half in the engineering product side. Um, engineering is, 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 is the life of a database company is very much sort of engineering heavy for a pr pretty long period of time. The sort of rule of thumb in the industry is, you know, it takes, takes like, uh, you know, seven years and a uh, hundred million dollars to like get to, to a 1.0 product. And, and we have the advantage that Frank did a lot of that work before we even started the company. Um, and I think you do need that, 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 that sort of R and D time scale. To, to, to make it sort of viable on venture timelines. Um, but yeah, today we're, we're I, I think, 55 um, and, 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 and growing pretty rapidly uh, in New York. And how hard is the sales, the sales aspect of a business like this? I mean, I know that sales, you got to really be strategic on how you're building the team, on how you are thinking about the cycles to really close those contracts. So, so how, how does that look like? So... Um, one thing that that we had really learned in uh, that I learned by observing uh, cockroach, which I think they navigated very successfully, and that we have sort of learned from, is because databases take so long to build and they're so hard to build. Um, most people who build and try to commercialize databases, they make the mistake by overselling, because how do you compete with Oracle, which has been around for for eternity and has billions and billions of dollars? Well, you try and you talk like you have a finished product. You say, well, you know, like this is perfect and we've did everything. We're 10x better and, you know, we polished it. And that's actually the wrong instinct um, because it's not really credible. You're a startup. You've barely been around. Of course, your product is new. Of course, it's raw. Um, and you actually lose customer trust. You lose user credibility. Um, by overselling, by, 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 by talking. So the thing that Cockroach did very well was by built one, by built it in public, right? So the, the best way to convince people that you know what you're doing is to expose everything, the, the, including the, the, the ugly sides and the bugs and the things that are breaking. Um, and, and so this source available model really helps build customer credibility uh, by building it in public. And second, they were they were very clear, and we've also tried to sort of follow down that by being very clear about our roadmap. Say, here's what we are building, here's how far we've gotten, you know, without 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 pretending we're further along than we actually are, and being very clear about how much more it's going to take. And here's how we've gone about capitalizing the business, so we're going to get the job done. I think, in particularly in in SaaS, customers are buying your roadmap just as much as they are buying what you have today. Because particularly for databases, these are decisions that people are making with a decade-long time horizon. They know that it's not perfect yet. 
But they kind of, they, what they're really buying is the trust that you build that when they find a bug or there's a production crash, you know what you're doing and you will jump on it and fix it. And so having that level of transparency and honesty goes a long way in, in, in selling. And that's something that I think, uh, you know, I, I would not, it, it's a little bit counterintuitive because I understand the urge to talk up what you've done. It's such a natural instinct, but it's actually counterintuitive that you kind of want to talk down and show the bugs first. A hundred percent. Now, in that regard, you know, as you're thinking about, you know, what you have today, and then also you were alluding to of what you may be able to to have, you know, down the line. Imagine you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up five years later. Imagine tremendous news. And you wake up in a world where the vision of materialize is fully realized. What does that world look like? So materialized, you know, our, our mission is to make sort of every business react to data in real time. So a lot of businesses, you know, we have a lot of successful customers that are using materialized to power much more, um, much superior user uh, experiences for their users, right? So, so uh, you know, anticipating user needs, you know, but whether that be through, through, through uh, you know, discounts or or, 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 or or targeted campaigns or or whether it be in personalization in the services that they provide to their users and materializes at the heart of this powering all of this quietly under the hood right so uh, you know one of the nice things I really enjoy about enterprise software is uh, it, it's a little bit under the surface it's more like infrastructure right like if it's doing its job right that the user who's actually getting all the value um, doesn't even know you're there. Um, I, I really enjoy that. It's a little bit like you get to see behind the scenes of this massive sort of piece of, 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 of infrastructure. And so, you know, in this world where we've succeeded, we are powering quietly under the hood in the cloud um, all of these amazing user experiences for consumers. Now, imagine if I put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time. I bring you back in time to that moment maybe where you were in still in Cockroach Labs and and thinking through and figuring out what that uh, future of you having your your own business, your own baby, you know, like would look like. Imagine if you had the opportunity of having a sit down with that younger Arjun and uh, being able to give that younger Arjun one piece of business advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? Uh, go slower. Yeah, I think the biggest advice I would give is, I, I think I really lucked out by spending Know, almost three years at Cockroach, that was really formative. I think the best way to learn how to operate a business, particularly in the enterprise B2B world, is to sort of spend time in a very well-run enterprise B2B company that has very good people who are very open and, and, and mentoring. Um, I think um, things have turned out great and things are you know great, but I, I, I could have done the first year of Materialize even slower. And I think by doing that, we would maybe be going faster today. I think uh, uh, there's this count again. These the best. I think it is counterintuitive that uh, you know, I think I think Mike Spicer, uh, the 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 venture capitalist, was the one who who you need to go slow in order to go fast later. Um, I think it's very true. Um, I would have maybe grown the team slower in the first year in order to grow the team faster today. And as you're talking about good people and mentoring, what are some of the um the key essence, you know, that you guys bring to the culture of materialize to make sure that, you know, you have employees do that. At the end of the day, they're excited about the future that they're living into, no? I think this one, 
sound it sounds boring, right? It's transparency. I think everyone says transparency. I think everybody means different things and, and sort of go a little bit. What I mean by that is you know, we go out of our way at Materialize to give all everyone who works at Materialize full access to everything, right? So so we try and transcribe every board meeting, for instance, word for word what was said, including criticisms. In fact, the criticisms are the most important part of what you want to share in trans in, in when being transparent. And and we make that available to everybody and in, 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 in Oftentimes, the first uh, few days when people join Materialize is just clicking through the archives, reading hundreds of pages of past transcripts. It gives them all this amazing context of, you know, the mistakes we've made, the the where we are here, what are we most worried about, what are what are different people worried about, um, and I think, you know, tra- and of course, transparency into financials, transparency into 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 absolutely every aspect of the business. I think is 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 the one that, and I think this also attracts great people because. You know, great people have very high standards for the companies that they pick. So you're, you you need to deliver this level of service uh, to any 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 member of the team uh, for them to say, "Wow, this is great! I'm going to go tell my really smart friends that this is where they should come and work." I love that. Now, for the um, for the people that are listening here, you know, to um, to be able to say to reach out and say hi, Arjun, what is the best way to do so? Um, I have a Twitter account. It's uh, uh, my last name, first name, Twitter slash Narayan Arjun. Um, I also uh, love email. You can email me at Arjun at materialize.com. Yeah, either of those two would, would result in a, in a pretty fast uh, response time. Amazing. Well, Arjun, thank you so, so much for being on the Dealmaker Show. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed uh, talking with you. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.